Hey, this is Elias Torres, co-founder and CTO of Drift. Did you know that Drift is part of the just 2% of VC-backed startups led by Latin American founders? Well, I am aiming to change that. I want to highlight stories of underrepresented leaders and help change the face of corporate America. Once a month, you'll hear inspiring stories from other underrepresented leaders as we work to build our own American dream. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you get the new episodes when they drop. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at EliasT and subscribe to get quarterly updates at drift.com slash American dream. So let's get started. I'm, I'm Elias Torres and in here I'm with Richie Serna, CEO of Phoenix Payments Company. Uh, this is the American Dream webinar. What is the American Dream? Is the opportunity for you to attain your own version of success in the United States of America. I'll be able to achieve that through hard work, right? Not by chance, not by the family, not by the color of your skin. That's what we're fighting here, right? Is to prove that this dream is alive, that, you know, as I'm in my own journey, I'm trying to document that. And I've learned that this is not a zero-sum game. We want more uh, underrepresented people, Latinos and Blacks, right, to be able to have hear what we are learning, what Richie and I are learning in, in, in the short part of our journey that we've been on and share with all of you, right? So, so you guys hear about this stuff because that's how I made the most progress, when somebody else teaches me about what's possible, what's next. And so that's the whole point of this, right, is to share and document our dream and, and our own version of success and give you ideas that if, if, if Richie can do it, well, we should all be able to do it because we're all amazing, equal, uh, all equally capable human beings that we can do that. So uh, Richie, uh, thank you for being here. Please, you want to tell a little bit about yourselves and uh, yeah. yourself and your COVID uh, new hobby. Or <laughs> thank you for having me. So I'm Richie Serna, CEO and co-founder of Phoenix. Uh, at Phoenix, we build software that helps any company become a payment company. And, and I, I can talk a little bit more about sort of the, the where we sit in the payments ecosystem in a few. Uh, in terms of my personal story, though, I'm from Southern California, born and raised down in uh, Santa Ana, Orange County. Not the typical Orange County that probably everybody thinks about. It's not like the, the real OC. Uh, Santa Ana is 80% Mexican immigrants. Uh, my parents actually immigrated there, both as undocumented undocumented immigrants back in the 60s and the 70s. And it still remains predominantly Latino as well. And so I was the first to go to college. Very proud of that. And it's mostly a testament to my family. Uh, one of the stories I always like to share is that the schools in Santa Ana are not necessarily the best uh, in Orange County. A lot of them are actually taken over by the, the sort of federal government. My parents uh, camped to get me into better schools, literally camped out some of the best schools in the neighborhood to make sure that I could get a better education. When it came to high school, uh, my mom uh, went to the neighboring city of Irvine, which has some of the best schools in California. And she literally took my test scores to every single school until somebody let me into their school, which was an incredible experience. And so I was the first to be able to go to college. I was lucky enough to get into Harvard. That was, I think, probably the second plane ride I ever took was to go visit. I had no idea anything. I'd never been to the East Coast. It was quite an experience, uh, to say the least. And so I studied uh, political science, uh, mostly because in all honesty, was was discouraged by a number of people for, from taking computer science classes. A lot of people told me, hey, don't take those classes. If you haven't been coding since you were 10, there's not really an opportunity for you to get into uh, the sort of STEM field. And so I, I ended up thinking I was going to be a lawyer, but started my career in management consulting. And so did that for about two and a half years where I worked at Booz and Company in New York, and I got really good at PowerPoint. I got really good at Excel models and then decided that wasn't necessarily a life for me. And so at the age of 25, had a quarter life crisis, as I like to say, and decided I was gonna learn software engineering in hopes of starting a company. Uh, so that was seven years ago now, and uh, ended up moving across the company uh, country, excuse me, to, to San Francisco to learn to code. And so that was sort of the, the start of my journey. Wow, I think that you said something very important and, and I don't wanna stereotype Latinos, I think, but I, I we have to be very careful of who we listen to, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, yeah. you, you, you learn such a hard lesson, right? That you could have been in computer science uh, at Harvard. And, uh, and, and I don't know, I'm making an assumption that this person 
knew about computer science, that this, you know, people knew what was required and what you needed to do for, for them to be, have authority to give you that comment? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually, I don't remember the specific individual, but I think like throughout our lives, we have people like that who try to put us down, who try to tell us, you know, what you can do, what you're capable of. Uh, in most of my life, I've never listened to those types of people. It's shared a little bit of that story of transferring high schools and how my mom got me into Irvine High School. The principal of the school that I went to, uh, Saddleback, uh, was not necessarily, as I mentioned, a great uh, institution to be at or, or to learn from. And before I transferred over, she told me, and I'll never forget this. She said, if you go to Irvine, you'll be a little fish in a big pond. If you stay here, you can be a big fish in a small pond. And so my response to her was, why can't I be a big fish in a big pond? And so I think that's sort of the mentality that you kind of have to have where, you know, people who are supposed to be coaching you, teaching you, helping you grow are putting you down. There has to be a little bit of the, the grit and, and so, you know, in the face of those types of naysayers. Yeah, so. Absolutely. And, and I think that the naysayers are, are, I feel like naysayers are not really successful people or people that we should really be looking up to, right? It's like, we, we should be looking, you know, like you're, you're a successful entrepreneur, then I want to learn from you, right? I want to hear from you. And, and, and usually what I find is that the people that are ahead of me, right, in their own version of success, they tend to give me amazing feedback and amazing encouragement or, 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 or criticism, right? Because yeah. Because they know something, they've been there, right? And that's kind yeah. of what I'm trying to share versus sometimes people are saying me things like, you know, when people are like, why you should leave startups? So people at IBM, when I was there for 10 years, yeah. were encouraging me from going into the startup world. Really? Yeah. Everybody was like, don't leave. It's dangerous. You're going to fail. You're gonna fail. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but we got to take risks. Yeah. Well, the theme of the, of the webinar here is that, you know, and I've been something honing in on what is the exact way I want to help Latinos in, in, in this country. Yeah. It's just to, there's so many problems, so many challenges we have in our journey that, that I'm just saying, let's just take more risks. If all of us took more risks, yeah. we would and, break the ceiling, right? Yeah. And, and I think what you probably experienced too, going from IBM to getting in the startup world is that once you're inside and you kind of are in that room, you realize that you can compete. You realize that you have those skill sets and it's just sort of the outsiders who are telling you, no, no, you're not worthy. You can't make it in this world. And I think it was probably my second or third year at Harvard and just realizing, oh, shit, I can do this. I can you know, not only just compete, I can perform at a level that other people didn't expect. And so when I got to the age of 25 and having been in consulting for two and a half years and realizing that that wasn't fulfilling, you kind of listen, you know, kind of start ignoring that noise that you hear from people. So I made when I made the transition, people thought I was crazy. 25, going to San Francisco to learn software engineering. Uh, but in, until that point, being in consulting where you're staying at the W hotels, you're you're getting hundred dollar a night, you know, steak dinners, and you're like, this is not fulfilling. This is not what I worked so hard for. This is not what I wanted my life to become. It was. You ever seen the movie Fight Club? Mm -hmm. You know the, the scene where all he does is like look at all the things he can buy off of IKEA. That's what it felt like my life that kind of turned into. And so seeing that, you know, your bank account's going up and seeing that, you know, you have that sort of prestigious job wasn't fulfilling, you know, allowed me to take that risk to go into the startup world. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily want to paint the picture that entrepreneurship is, is the only way to go, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that people have different levels of ambitions. And that's why I want, I love the definition of the American dream. That is, everyone should achieve their own version of success, right? Yep. For, for us being immigrants, like to, to, to be able to work at a large company, be, get to grow up, climb the ladder, be a vice president, have a, a home and a family and a white picket fence, whatever your definition of success is, is a fantastic thing, right? Mm -hmm. But for some of us, that might not give us the purpose and the motivation and the freedom to move around and, and, and feel the impact of our work, right? And, and then the same, it could be for going into nonprofits and other places, help the community, right? So... Yeah. There is no, there's not one thing. I don't want to say everybody, but what I, what I'm illustrating is that my network right now at the moment tends to be about entrepreneurs. So tell us about your company, the size of it. You know, I know a lot of people love to talk about funding rounds and, and, and <laughs> uh, you got some, some, some juicy stories with, with, with Sequoia and other things. <laughs> we'll save that one for another webinar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, uh, stories, just context. What, what, yeah. what, what's Phoenix right now? Yeah. So we started the company back in 2016. 
uh, probably spent the first two and a half years or so really just building the product, focusing focusing on our MVP and, and um, getting to the point that we were able to raise our Series A last uh, June or July. Uh, so since then, we've raised about $100 million from you know VCs across the industry. As you mentioned, Sequoia was, was involved at one point. We've also raised money from Bain Capital Ventures, Homebrew Ventures, uh, Insight, uh, and most recently, Lightspeed. We've also brought in some incredible investors from across the, the payments ecosystem. So Visa and Master, uh, Visa and Amex, excuse me, are both investors that we're incredibly proud of. Yeah, tell us about that, right? In the world of investment, right? You, you, you go to um, a VC and there's different tiers of VCs. Tell us, teach us a little bit more about that. And then also teach us about why do companies need uh, strategic investors, right? Yeah. So uh, in the world of VCs, as you mentioned, there's sort of different calibers of venture capitalists that you can work with. The, I guess kind of the saying is that not all money is green, right? There are different uh, investors you can bring different types of value. And there's also different uh, investors who focus on particular stages. So for example, at our seed round, Homebrew uh, led our round and um, also had participation from Act One. Uh, I think some of the investors from Act One are, are probably uh, on this webinar today, uh, led by uh, a Latino investor as well. They're really focused on getting you from that zero to one, right? Really thinking through how do you build a company? At the time when we raised our uh, seed round, uh, we were only about five people. And you know, scaling a company from five people to 15, you know, really just getting sort of your MVP out and starting to build the business is a very unique skill set. And then going from sort of the Series A to where we're at today is a very different challenge where you're thinking about how do you take your company from 15 to 100 employees? How do you build actually an enduring business, an enduring culture? Uh, and how do you set yourself up to scale the operations, which uh, is you know, an entirely different skill set as well? And so as we thought about how we built out our VCs and who we wanted to work with, it was really thinking about each of them as sort of a tool in a toolkit, right? What was each individual's investor's sort of superpower? Could they help you think through product market fit? Could they help you think through how to hire next level of executives? Um, those are all things that each investor that we work with brings a little bit sort of different perspective. Uh, and so the way that I like to think about how to put together the best um, set of investors is is not only you know ask them where they think that they can ask them that most value, but I ask the portfolio companies that they work with, the founders that they've spoken to, and I'll always ask all of our VCs to introduce us to three you know companies they've funded, and so right. I'll ask them for two that have you know been sort of rocket ships, the people who've taken off, but also one who didn't work out that well because you want to know what your investors are like when the going gets tough. And it's easy to be a part of a rocket ship, but there is no, you know, sort of linear path to success in the world of startups. And so it is very much a roller coaster and you want the investors who are going to get in it with you. Let, let me, let me blend in a little bit. I think some of the questions that people are putting in to some of the comments you made. One is that Andres Barreto says that you could have built anything you wanted. Why, why tackle this problem? Why tackle the world of payments? Yeah. I mean, so the, the true story is back when I was living in New York and I was in management consulting, I had interviewed a bunch of, of VC firms and, and I had failed to, to get a final round offering. Through that process, started working on my own sort of startup ideas with my brother, with some of my college roommates, trying to figure out what our idea would look like. Some of the earliest ideas were, uh, if you guys remember like Birchbox, we were trying to do something like that, but for like nutritional supplements, we were working on another thing to do sort of Airbnb, but for um, open like spaces, right? So any sort of retail space that wasn't taken care of, like I was actually calling up restaurants and, and you know, retail spots and trying to get them to use our product and uh, realized at that point uh, that I needed to have sort of a technical background to help me really take those prototypes to life. And so realizing that I didn't have the technical chops and, and I didn't go down that technical background at Harvard, I started reading about people learning how to do software engineering in San Francisco. So that's what sort of inspired me to come out there. In terms of, of how I got into payments, it was pure luck. So I interviewed at one place and one place only. Uh, it was a company called Balanced, which was a competitor to Stripe. And so really what Balanced was, it was basically the first payments API for marketplaces. So if you think about marketplaces, crowdfunders, platforms, they were the first ones to really service that segment of the market. I didn't know anything about payments, didn't think it was cool back in 2013 when I first got introduced to the company, but I hit it off with one of the founders. Uh, his name is Jero Wade. Uh, he actually now works uh, at Phoenix and he's our CRO. Jero is just an inspiring person. He's exactly the type of person that you'd want to work for. So the kind of story behind him, uh, he's a black guy from Tucson. And so all of his friends are Mexican. I'm Mexican and a lot of my friends in college are all black. And so we kind of looked at each other and we're like, 
you're my other half. And so I knew that I wanted to learn from him and he was an inspiring founder of color that um, I wanted to work for. And so I begged and pled for them to give me a job. And I actually found the email that I sent to Dro back in 2013. And I said, I know that you guys have, you know, engineers who contributed to Python and Ruby or, you know, world-class engineers. Uh, I will work for food. And so for 3000 bucks a month for an entire year, that was basically my degree in computer science. And it was an incredible experience, not only in, into the world of engineering, into startups, but also into payments, right? Really getting in that early when, you know, I think I was number seven or eight in terms of the engineering team and being able to soak up that experience. There's nothing like that. The amazing thing is the world is just so open and full of opportunities. We just need to learn how to see, seek them, right? Mm-hmm. But there's so many paths, like so yep. many people... I don't know, right? I don't, I don't have full stats, but well, I have some stats that it says that the most successful founders are over 40, right? So, <laughs> so there's some bias that everybody thinks that you have to be 22 years old to like start a company. And so like there's some, there's stats about age. I don't know about uh, what are the stats for first time founders or, you know, first company is the one that is the most successful. Mm-hmm. So much time, you know, time, life is short, but at the same time, it is plenty, has plenty of time for us to, to be successful. It's like my, my approach, I worked at IBM and then I worked for David, you know, as my partner yep. and gain experience from him as opposed to me joining a first time founder and being two first timers doing it. Right. And so you being at that company, right. Yeah. It, it just clarified to you the problem and he gave you the confidence that, Hey, you, you can do pieces of it. Now you can do the whole which is what happened to me at HubSpot, right? It's like, yeah, seeing that company going public gave me enough craziness, confidence, right? To just go start my own. And oh, yeah. It's harder than I thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, but, a, there's a little bit of a, of inertia to it and just kind of, you know, taking that first step. And for, for us at Phoenix, after we ended up exiting to Stripe in 2015, we were basically out of the job. And so we had a bunch of companies reach out to us saying, hey, we really love the technology that you built at Balance. What if you came in-house and did that for us? And so that was the light bulb moment first of, oh, there's a unique skill set that we have that people are willing to pay for. And what if we could actually turn that into a product? We didn't know how big it was going to get, but we knew that there was you know, a, a sort of business there that we could look at and just start to build upon that. And I think that's really what every startup, how they all begin, or for most of them, right? Most Very few people come into it and say, hey, this is going to be a $100 billion idea. I know it from today. It's just, here's a business and let's get started and let's see where it grows and we can iterate, we can pivot. And it starts to sort of snowball into something bigger. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, but in, 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 in hindsight, it's, it's, it's pretty clear knowing Stripe, right? That the payments world <laughs> is pretty big. In hindsight, hindsight's 2020. When hindsight's we, were, we talked we, about that though, because people are asking like, how do you, do you have to verify that before? Uh, but you, you, you gave me what, how do you, how did you know it was going to be a big business? I, so I'll, I'll touch on the, 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 the Stripe story in the world of payments and how it got so big. When we joined Balance back in 2013, most VCs were not putting any money into the fintech space. Uh, it was uh, before Stripe, there was PayPal was the last big exit in the financial services sector. Wow. And so yeah, if you think about it, right, there's not that many sort of proof points. Now, all so. money is going into fintech. Yeah. What? Everybody thinks it's so obvious, right? Like, yeah. Ten, uh, it, go, go ahead. 10 years later, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, 10 years later. Exactly. I remember when Braintree, which was another payment company in our industry, they sold for $800 million. And we were there at the time, you know, at, at Balance. And we thought that was the craziest thing we had ever heard. Now to kind of see where the world has progressed and, and how big fintech has gotten, where I think it's like 15 to 20% of all VC funding is pouring into this industry. It was not the hot thing to do yeah. seven years ago. Actually, even when we raised our seed round, and this was back in 2017, every single investor would just talk to me about Bitcoin. Isn't Bitcoin going to wipe payments away? Aren't they going to destroy this? And it was just like, Jesus. Yeah. It's like people don't realize like there are all these naysayers, right? That would yeah. stop you from, from, from getting there. It says, how did you, what experiment or method did you get to, to your first product market fit, right? I think we were really lucky in that we were very early in the payment space uh, back at, at Balance where we got started. We knew that we were onto something at that time. And that was sort of Phoenix 1.0. Uh, 
that was our first sort of foray into building payments, not just for merchants, but for platforms. And when we first got started, people didn't know what marketplaces, you know, payments for marketplaces look like. They didn't know what payments for for platforms was. And now it's this massive segment of the market. Uh, it was hard for us to articulate sort of the value proposition then. And then towards our earliest, day, latest days at Balance, I think that's when we really started to see what we had built was incredibly special. When we started Phoenix, uh, we already sort of knew what we were building and we knew how, if we were to rebuild it again, how to build an even better version of that. And that's really sort of the, the inception of, of the first few days. And so Phoenix is actually Phoenix in Spanish, but instead of F-E-N-I-X, it's F-I-N-I-X. And so the idea here is it's, you know, the Phoenix back from the ashes, you know, the, the better, bigger uh, payment company that we're building second time around. Love that. And it's the, the whole play on Spanish, so the Phoenix. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of room for mentorship and, and advising. Um, not all of us have a ton of capital. And it's one of the things that I talk about that's one of the diffi- the most difficult things about starting a company from an underrepresented background. If you just purely look at the statistics, the average Latinx or Black family has maybe $20,000 saved uh, across their entire family. You look at the average white family, it's about $140,000. It's just a difference in terms of magnitude of what that family can contribute to a, you know, their children being able to start a company and being able to take that risk. When people say go off and start your company and you know, use a friends and family round, and that's how you get started. Most people from our backgrounds don't have that luxury. Um, the other thing is that they, you know, a, a big part of raising money comes down to your network. And so if you don't have the network with the VCs, who can kind of break into that door. It's very difficult to do that. I mean, most VCs probably get over a thousand decks sent to them every single year and they invest in maybe five to five to 10 investments per year, that can be something that can cut off you know, people if they didn't go to the right schools, if they don't have the right contacts. Uh, and then it comes down to momentum. If you don't have the right momentum uh, in the beginning, because you don't have the capital to start your product, it's very difficult. What you can do though, and what I, I have always taken a lot of pride in is helping to mentor and advise you know, first-time founders, help to mentor people in towards you know, getting into their first job at a technology company, coaching them through that sort of transition of their career as well. And those things are invaluable. Helping people navigate a very complex world. It's not the same sort of, I think, cookie cutter progression that you see in finance or consulting where you come in as an analyst and you go to the next step. Startups is this sort of the wild, wild west and trying to help people get into the right companies at the right times. That's something that we can continue to help you know, young people breaking into that industry, even if they don't have the capital to do it. Absolutely, which I think we're going to save some time to talk about capital. How much money do you need to have saved to start a company? Uh, that's a, it's a, it's a definitely an interesting question. Um, I will say that I saved up a lot of my money after I left, left management consulting because I knew that I was going to take a massive pay cut to, to invest in myself, invest in the sort of new career trajectory into learning software engineering. And you know, probably from that point until where I ended up raising our seed round, I maxed out all my credit cards put people's payroll on those credit cards to make sure that we could make ends meet, you know, put my own personal credit line for paying our AWS servers and stuff like that. There is an element of risk that that's there. And some of that can be scary. Uh, but I think you and I have talked about, you know, at a certain point when you don't have that plan B, and this is the only plan A, it pushes you to that ability where you know that you're going to make it work. Uh, yeah. And I think that was something that for me, when I didn't really have a backstop. I didn't have anywhere else to go uh, or anybody to rely on to help me pay for the company early on in its earliest days. That was an incredible sense of motivation. You, you're the real deal. I mean, you're like, you, you ha- I don't have that story of like... <laughs> don't tell my mom about it. She wouldn't be happy about it <laughs> that I did those things. AWS server bill on your credit card. You know, it's such a common thing. And, and well, so I... I- I'm giving the, the the alternative to that. I I I didn't have any money saved, like Jankla. <laughs> like, I didn't have any money saved. I, I was living paycheck to paycheck when yeah. I went to the startup world. I was crazy. I left IBM, uh, but I worked with another entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, that, that was able to do some fundraising. So that's I'm just giving you to to the audience a hint, right? Of there's ways to do it. I had I had probably at most three months of extra money when I went into the startup world, even at IBM after 10 years in cash. And one, one of the things that, I, I think one of the things that inspired me to make the move as well was that, you know, basically with a laptop, you can get off and get started on, on your own company, right? You can start building those prototypes. You don't need a ton of capital these days to get a business started. Uh, and that's one of the unique things of being able to get access to some of the incubators that are out there. 
Y Combinator, Y Combinator, which is one of the most prestigious incubators out there, takes a lot of companies who are pre-product, um, who you know have a few years of experience in a specific sector, pitch sort of an idea, and then give them 150 or 200,000, I forget what the last amount is, to go off and start their company. And so I think just getting started and, and working on the idea and thinking through the sort of business model, that's enough these days to get, to get going. There's a ton of capital that's out there and people, particularly investors, are looking at, at places to park it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to keep on the questions here. I, I think, like you said, it's like no plan B is something that we want to share with people here, right? What do we mean by that is that the people that have too many options, it makes it much harder for them to make a decision to start a company, right? When, oh, absolutely. When your family has, you know, all their family has gone to Harvard or MIT and they're doctors and they're lawyers and they grew up here and they had a lot of privilege, right? And and then like, there's a lot of pressure. You need to be this. If, if your parents were CEOs of companies in this in big industry and not the startup world or medical, it's yeah. the pressure of like who you are. For, for me, I had... I had no choice, right? You know, when, when our first company with David failed and then people were, and David calls me, he's like, you want to start a company with me? I had no plan B. I had no job, right? So <laughs> I'll start this. I don't know what risk. I don't know if he was going to ask me for my credit card. <laughs> 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 paying for the bills. I just said yes, because I had no other option. So having no other option, I think, simplifies the, the thinking, right? What yeah. I mean, that was something that I've seen with a lot of my friends from college who parents who tried either entrepreneurship and tried to start their own companies and weren't necessarily, you know, rocket ships uh, companies told their kids not to do it and told them, Hey, there's easier ways to make money. And there, there are probably easier ways to make money. And as you said, it, it comes down to purpose and impact and what's fulfilling for you. And I think, you know, for me, making it to college, that already sort of surpassed my parents' wildest dreams. And, and anything that I was going to do from that point on, you know, was just cream on top. And so for me, being able to take that sort of risk, I always like to say like the risk that I took is nothing compared to what my parents did. Coming to this country undocumented, um, building a new life, that's real risk. What I'm doing here is something I, I tr truly cre uh, consider uh, a luxury and something that is incredibly exciting and fulfilling for me. I got a question here. I saw it says, uh, at what point in your entrepreneurship journey did you start to see momentum? Well, when was that shift? Probably two, three years in, <laughs> to be honest. There, very few people have the overnight success. And I think everyone thinks that it's like, hey, you start coding and your product sells itself and it's you know unicorn status right away and you invest, you know, raise money for all, all these incredible investors. That's not what it's really like. At least that wasn't my experience. And the first two years was just slogging it away. In fintech in particular, we always tell our customers it takes you probably two to three years of building a payment system before you can run your first transaction. Having built two payment companies, that is very true. And it doesn't necessarily get any easier the, the second time around. And in the earliest days, when you don't have a ton of capital, you're just heads down focused on building, building, building. You're ignoring the noise. Um, you're in these tiny little offices with no windows. I always like to say that my first year of Phoenix was like the movie Castaway. So you remember Tom Hanks just being on this island, talking to a coconut, right? Or, or not a coconut, a volleyball, uh, Wilson. Wilson, there you go. My Wilson is my dog, Daphne. And so for a year, I, I lived, uh, actually for the first five years in San Francisco, I lived in a seven bedroom apartment in Chinatown. And I would go from my bedroom to the living room and just work. And that was just what I did every single day. And so it was, you know, knowing that building, you're building towards something. Uh, and having that bigger picture of what you want to be able to build. And you know, now we're processing billions of dollars on our platform every single year, which is incredibly exciting to see that sort of transition. But you have to put the reps in at the beginning, right? It doesn't just happen overnight. Um, that's, that's, um, that's incredible. You know, that's just so encouraging, right? That we got to keep reminding ourselves, right? That we're having, you know, to live in a crowded space in a very you know, tight space with lots of people sharing to be able to afford the rent to be able to see that you have the opportunity of building a company with, you know, hundred million funding with billions of, of dollars. I mean, like you're processing billions of dollars. I mean, that is, that is so, that's, that's awesome. Right. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I do love it. It's, it's, it's a ton of fun, especially when you think back on those earliest days uh, and it's just baby steps, right? It's those little incremental steps to get to that 
momentum to get to that next fundraising round, to close that next engineer, to close that next executive, to raise that next round, to close the next customer and continue to sort of push that ball forward. Do you think that people should move to San Francisco to, um, to start a company? I am usually in companies started all around the U S and all around the world. Frankly, for me, I, I love San Francisco. I, I love the, just the small sort of pocket of concentration of, of weirdos and VCs and engineers. And that's what I like to geek out on. I've lived in New York. I've lived in Boston, lived in LA. Each one of them has their own really great cultures. But for me, San Francisco is definitely home now. That's fantastic, right? Uh, but it shouldn't be a, a deterrent, right? From starting the company. Yeah. No, I mean, you can start it anywhere, right? I, I see now more investors are investing in companies remote now, in board meetings now. The, the the reason why there was such a concentration, at least my understanding, and I've never even lived in the Valley, is that uh, Don Valentine, for example, Sequoia, like they would just invest in the companies that they could bike to. That was the privilege and the access that they, they, they had before. So you kind of had to come closer to them because if they invested in those five, 10 companies, they didn't want to be on a plane to go to a board meeting. But mm. now having those meetings, you know, over Zoom, right? And so the, the barriers are breaking and now people are like, oh, I'm investing in companies wherever I can meet them now because yeah. it's over Zoom. Pre-COVID though, it was basically concentrated around South Park in San Francisco. So if you've been in that area, basically every single VC moved from <laughs> Sand Hill Road Sand Hill. down to Soma. And you can just be in that one little you know, pocket and you'll see every single VC in there. And so you go to the Blue Bottle coffee shop right there and you can probably see every single person pitching. <laughs> so there's something very unique to not having, uh, as a founder, also fly from you know, a different city into San Francisco. Yeah, but I mean, we, we break in those, those barriers, right? Because people are investing on people that they never met in person, right? Zoom. So this is Zoom. the opportunity <laughs> that we have, right? Yeah. This is more now than ever that we can be in, in anywhere in the U.S. and go and go pitch to the right mm-hmm. people. Because I would see sometimes, I, I have roots in Tampa, right? And I would know friends that went to school there. And they were only like pitching to people close by. And they were like raising so little money for so much of their company. Mm-hmm. There's never an opportunity, right? So you, yeah. you got to look at the benchmarks and, and not take uh, money. It, 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 maybe this is the back into not all dollars are green, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't take $250,000 for like 50% of your company, right? It's, yeah. It's just never going to work. And so you, you have to really read all this information is out there. And that's why we're recording this, right? Let's talk about the other side, right? One side is I can go and work for the next 20 years to mm-hmm. be experience in startups. Yep. Convincing people to give me money, right? Work for the average, the average lifespan of a company that goes public is what? 10 years, right? It's like the companies do not go public in less than 10 years. It's yeah. like, these are the fastest growing companies in the world, right? Yeah. And then it takes 10 years to reach a hundred and plus million dollars in revenue. And so you dedicate all that time, only one in thousands makes it to that spot. Mm-hmm. And then as a founder, you, then you might become, you know, wealthy, upward mobility, change your lifestyle, right? That's really difficult. Yeah. All this hard work. What are other ways that we can increase upward mobility and what I call generational wealth that I found out, you know, white people have more access to and because they've been building and accumulating over the years. How can we, that we just came to this country and had nothing, right? Yeah. How can we start building that generational wealth? Well, I think, you know, Part of it is like the classic immigrant story, right? I, I think there, um, if I look at my parents in terms of work ethic and where I pick that up, it's 100% from my parents. My dad's a bus driver, OCTA, employee of the month. He just received it uh, a few months ago. So big shout out to Pops. He, I don't think he missed a day of work in like 20 some years. And this man would wake up every single day at 4 a.m., drive around the clock uh, to put food on the table, to provide. And I never heard him complain a single day. He would show up every single day to work, fresh pressed, dry cleaned uh, drivers, bus drivers outfit. And I think that is the inspiration and the sort of archetype that I always sort of try to model myself off of when it came to hard work and, and sort of that upward mobility and doing whatever it takes to kind of get to that next step. In terms of, of starting a company is incredibly difficult, especially in the world of venture to, to achieve that. I think what you're getting at is you know, investing in other companies as well and sort of getting that upside and that exposure without having to actually be 
the founder yourself. And so there's a lot of people who've made generational wealth by investing in companies, being the first check in Uber, in Amazon, in eBay, and things like that. And that had these you know, rippling effects for them. And I think that's one of the things that historically the world of venture has been concentrated in a small pocket of individuals who, you know, big name funds get to get the sort of pick of the litter when it comes to the best companies. And one of the things that we at, at Phoenix have done to sort of not only um, diversify our cap table, but also diversify the opportunity and the sort of upside for people in our community is we actually raise an additional round of capital as a part of our series B just for founders, or excuse me, just for investors of color. It was largely inspired by Act One's sort of diversity rider, which you know is really intended to help new VCs break into the industry and giving them the opportunity to invest in a company like Phoenix and, and in hopes that sort of you know rising tide raises all boats. And so that was something that was really important for me was to have a, not only a diverse company, but a diverse cap table. And so uh, the, uh, the hope is, you know, not only do we create a few hundred millionaires out of our earliest employees and you know, massive returns for investors, but hopefully a few VC funds get started out of, of, of their investment in Phoenix. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is this is mind-boggling. This is in in some ways is is also fairly new to me. I mean, I think what you're doing uh, here and and my, you know, it was only a few years ago that I started investing in companies as an angel investor, right? This is an extremely extremely important topic here that is. I just don't usually hear it, right? I think that it, it's like we we kind of just like we're starting to be familiar with the notion of entrepreneurship and starting a company. Oh, it's being the founder and being successful. Okay, that's 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 okay. That's really hard. But I think that we might not be paying attention to all those. You know what happens? I think I know a few. I know a, few, a couple of two or three people that are early investors in Uber, mm. right? Go look those things up, right? Yeah. What did seventy-five thousand uh, dollars early check turn like? I know it. I think it was like twenty-five thousand dollars turning like one hundred and twenty-five million dollars at IPO, seventy-five, three hundred, and blah blah, and so forth, right? This is massive. This is for no work. No work, right? Was put into putting besides the amount of money for that check to become that, right? Those people yeah. did not have to do anything. But what we are not realizing that we do not have access to those networks. Mm-hmm. It is a privilege for, for, for you to know those founders that are not immigrants, that are not of color, that are building those companies with tight networks, giving access to the investors, right? And, and, they, and these people are, are writing and making that money, creating that generational wealth. And so like what you're doing is extremely special, right? It's, it's like, People don't even don't even realize that you don't need any more funding, right? From people like me, right? You, mm. that, you don't need that to run your business, right? But you're actually opening up part of your cap table, yeah, to give access to those that we would not have access to the, to those things. It's, it's incredible, right? So please, you know, I want people to pay, pay attention to this uh, and learning and, and and read more about becoming an angel investor, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the kind of success. Yeah, I think you know the incredible thing about this webinar is representation matters, and I think that's one of the things that you know we want to share these stories so people can see other founders who look like us uh, who are going off and starting incredible companies. Because not too long ago, five six years ago, we didn't see those types of stories, we didn't hear about those stories, and that is powerful. But there's a certain amount of power also to allocation of investment and attribution of investment, and being able to get your dollars into a deal that could you know more than 100x and, and being able to take that and um, invest in other founders of color as well and create more not more opportunity. I think that's one of the most powerful things about something like Y Combinator. You know, all these companies come together and they invest in each other, they use each other's tools, they help sort of bootstrap their businesses to these like rocket ships. And I think that's a, a unique opportunity for us to be able to create in our community as well. My first model was uh, as after HubSpot went public, it was like, as an entrepreneur, I said, I want to, I want to help. If I cannot personally invest, I'm going to go help make sure that you get investment for people that work for me. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was it. I wasn't really aware and understood, like, should I be angel investing? How do I make these decisions? Right. And then slowly I've been starting to, to learn more about it. And um, one of those is, is Clavio company in Boston here. Do you know, you're familiar with them? 
Clavio, Clavio. They just, I might even be messing up the name, but they just raised another round, right? They're a $4.4 billion company, right? That's awesome. And so like they, um, they started, so Andrew, I just went for a walk this morning with Andrew, the CEO, yeah. you know, the founder. He used to work for me at one of my startups with David, right? Oh, that's incredible. It's so like, uh, uh, it's like, it, it's, it's just so, so incredible to see him and the successes he's accomplished, right? I'm so in awe of him, but I was able to help him with the investment and I was able to do some early investment in that. By starting to see the growth of that and the potential, it's making me, you know, encouraging me to invest more, right? Yeah. Like that's, and that's kind of when you reached out, you know, with the yeah. opportunity for me to be able to invest in Phoenix, right? It's like, such a such an honor right to get to get that request but we want to encourage people here to to think about it work save that money like you did right and maybe you don't have to start your own company maybe invest in these companies like like yours build a network come to these webinars get to know these people right because there's so many ways uh, to make money and with those returns is where we can create the new funds right yeah that then we can go and like invest in our community and our people because otherwise we're not going to have that that confidence boat, right, for us, yeah. for the kind of companies we want to build. No, that's awesome. That's super inspiring that, that he did that uh, and started his own company. Uh, one, when people always ask, like, where do you want to take Phoenix and, and what's sort of the aspiration for it? And, you know, we talk about, like, how big we want the company to be and taking it public and, and creating a company that's iconic in the same way as that, you know, PayPal and Square are. But one of the things that excites me the most is sort of this idea that, that was sort of inspired by uh, the PayPal mafia, right? And so, you know, the PayPal mafia was a group of sort of the first hundred employees who worked at PayPal. And then they went off after and started their own companies and became CTOs and founders and heads of VC firms and everything in between and had massive impacts on Silicon Valley. And so we always talk at, at Phoenix about how we, how we want to create the Phoenix mafia and having people who came and, and worked early at, at Phoenix and built bigger and badder companies elsewhere. And that's incredibly inspiring. And so we actually just had our first Phoenix Mafia member who just got started. He was our, our, our lead uh, front-end engineer, Carlos Rodriguez, just got into Y Combinator a few weeks ago. And uh, that was one of the most emotional, inspiring things for me. So seeing how we can continue to help grow that community is Absolutely. amazing. And by you being in YC, these are the trailblazers, right? That, that you guys here, the audience is seeing. Like, Richie, you were at YC, right? I actually was not. I but, was not. But we know who, Ricardo, and we know others that yep. are. We know a bunch. Yep, that's right. So, like, we, we go and we start breaking into these networks, into the circles, and the people start getting familiar with us, and then we can, you know, reach out and bring them into it. Like, if you, yep. if you say, like, do your homework. If you need a, if you need a, an introduction to Sequoia, if you need an introduction to, to, to the firm's Lightspeed and other ones that you're working with, right? We are your bridges to that, right? And it's hard to help everybody. It's like, you got to learn how to ask, learn how to <laughs> show some value because we, we are a little bit um, overworked and underpaid. And so we have to figure out um, uh, how to help you, but like breaking that engineering into YC, right? We want to encourage. I, I want to encourage everybody adrift, right, to go start their own companies as soon as the time is right and is ready. And that's why it's really important to balance. You don't have to go with no skills, go start a company and learn everything the hard way. It's so much right. better like, when you work at a company, like working working at Phoenix, right, it's going to give them this experience, seen oh, the yeah. company before, and the network to then be able to, to start a company and, and be able to use you as a resource, right? Yeah. It's such an, an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Experience is expensive, man. It is super, super expensive. And so if you can use people like myself or you to learn from our experiences and where we fell short and you know where we made mistakes and how we can advise others, I'm always happy to do stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there's Andy Jassy from AWS from Amazon says there's no compression algorithm for experience, right? <laughs> I love that. That's gold. It's crazy. Um, I think here's some question. Claudia Cornali says, for those of us who may not have the funds to contribute to a startup as an angel investor, how else can we approach? So there's just so many ways to start investing now, right? There's like, um, what's it called? Uh, in in, in uh, angel list, right? There's syndicates, for right. example, where you can, you don't have to put in, you know, uh, $100,000, but you can start with even 5000 1000 Any other uh, opportunities, uh, ideas, Richie, for that? I think that's the main way that people break in. It's, you know, with syndicates and SPV, special purpose vehicles, you know, getting a bunch of people together, 
pulling their sort of capital and, and having them invest in a bunch of different opportunities. Um, there's usually networking groups. So um, I didn't go to business school, but I know a bunch of the business schools have their own sort of angel networks and things like that, where they'll talk about different opportunities to invest. Uh, a big part of it's breaking into that network as well and kind of asking people, hey, how can I get involved? I think one of the unique things about the, the tech world compared to the world of finance and consulting is that people want to help each other. They're, I think the, the, the best example of that is open source technology. Right, the idea that a bunch of people will come together in a community to build some technology that they'll give away for free for the greater good. That doesn't exist in finance. It exists in the world of Silicon Valley. And so um, I appreciate all the people who helped get me into those networks and helped me sort of ramp up and learn. Uh, and I think that's probably the best way to do it. It's incredible. Um, if you could do it all over again at Phoenix or Drift, uh, what would you do differently? Oh, man. I could write a book on that. Yeah. There's so many things that I would do differently. Uh, oh, I mean, I think a, a big part, actually, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is, is investing more in myself, investing in coaching, mentorship. You know, you can go off and start to run your own company, but that doesn't mean you actually know how to be a good manager. It doesn't mean you know how to necessarily be a good sort of leader and building those like muscles early on is really critical. And I think that's something that I've been investing a lot of in exec coach and, and other things like that. So I wish I would have got started with those things earlier. <laughs> Definitely. I'm pretty old. And I just had like my first coach like a couple of years ago. No, oh, yeah. nothing better than have you to have somebody watching you at every meeting <laughs> down, taking notes. And I say something and I'm like, throw the Latino fire into a meeting and just like go crazy. And it's notes are being written down. <laughs> and everybody a, needs coaching. Yeah. Everybody is coaching. And then everybody, yeah, you know, um, geez, escape it name escaping me. The checklist manifesto, a tool. Oh, I have the book right there. I read it this weekend. It's awesome. So I yeah. read that book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should. It's like, you know, so he he amazing story. Sports did not have coaches until Harvard and Yale. Like, you know, 75 something. There was no players just played against each other and they just went at it. There was no coaching. And so they, they were the first one to get coaches. And that was an amazing hit story, but not every, nobody else uses coaches. So he was a surgeon. He's a surgeon, right? He's a, you know, one of the most successful surgeons in the United States. And he was like, okay, he was doing surgery and, and he's just the surgery. No one helps him improve. And so he had <laughs> watch him do surgeries and yep. tell him all the things he was doing wrong. Yeah. Right. And then he went and did this mortality rates and birth rates in, in India and so forth. And, and it's like, and, and that's kind of what been convincing me because I kept hearing the word coaches, 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 coaches. And I'm like, what is this? Is this some fancy therapist thing? You know, and, and I, I would, <laughs> against it. There are, there are some coaches who are fancy therapists, but they're good ones. <laughs> you know how to thread the fine line between the, you know, helping you become a better manager and a better organization builder. Yeah, we say a drift is an important principle is always uh, be a curious learning machine, right? And, and the, being humbled by a coach and interviewing your team and saying all the things that you did wrong and, and giving you the feedback right after it's, it's, it's nothing but humbling, but it has changed my attitude altogether that I'm just used to people telling me what I'm doing wrong yeah. and, <laughs> like, all day long. So that's the life of an entrepreneur. I uh, love this. Uh, so many good questions. Who are some of the Latino investors operators that you look for inspiration and model after? So I think actually I saw one of them is in here. Alejandro from Act One is, is definitely one of them. He actually gave us our first term sheet back in the day. Emmanuel uh, Pleitez, who uh, does angel investing, is now a, a, an investor in Phoenix as well. Samara, uh, who's one of the first uh, Latinas to start her own VC fund. Uh, I met a number of years ago and she's uh, involved with Phoenix and an incredible person and investor. So and they're they're definitely out there. Oh, Rami Reyes is, is, is a close friend as well. I actually met him. Uh, back at JP Morgan, we were both interns, uh, junior year, summer, and he is now a partner at a big shop fund as well. There's a great group. I think it's the, the Latinx VCs um, that have kind of come together. Ramon Leal from Lead Partners. Uh, there's definitely, I mean, it's growing. It's definitely growing. There's representation there. We started oh, yeah. to, you know, to, to have people that we can go and talk to and get advice and mm -hmm. they want to help us. So you know, and then there's everybody in this in this in this webinar here has interest in investing, has interest in starting companies, has interest in in creating generational wealth, right? So I love that you that you're all here, that you're hungry, that you want to learn, and and really wanna we want to encourage you to take the risk, right? It's like 
it's like you'll never regret you know trying something and failing than never have done it right and so i i mean like look at richie uh, follow his example and and see that his story is 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 in some ways is special is unique is extraordinary but at the beginning of his journey it looks like all of our stories right and so we all should have access and be like if he can do it we can do it he didn't even know how to code right and you and look at where, where you are and what what an amazing uh, empire you're building i think the way to think about it in terms of risk it's not that you're taking a bet on a company it's that you're taking a bet on yourself and so that's the way that i've always looked at everything and i'll invest in myself all day i'll take a bet on myself all day and everybody who's in this uh webinar has done a lot to you know, take bets on themselves so keep doing it keep doing it invest in yourself uh yeah i mean wh- who else why would you invest in anybody else right it's like you're you're the most important person right now and you have to take care of that person and invest and take risks and then and then make sure that you understand that there's people that want to help there might be people that are going to say no i'm busy but keep trying, keep asking, offer something. You're always going to have something of value to offer to others. And so please, please don't, don't, don't waste that that you can provide and build for others. Try it out and you'll be amazed at the relationships and the networks you can tap into and, um, and grow with them. You know, the, rice, uh, the tide that rises all boats, right? I'm usually terrible at saying, so I think I said that one right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you nailed it, yeah. Okay. I think that the big thing is I always tell people is just take the leap of faith, right? Just get started. Put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, if it's that first line of code, if it's reaching out to that first potential customer, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was talking to, to, to an older gentleman this weekend that uh, he created a device and it was selling. He's an engineer and he was struggling at selling it. And I said, why don't you call some of the customers? Right. And he's like, oh, ah, I, sh- I should. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. so I love what you said. Talking to customers. Those are things that we should shine on and and I'd be able to go out there and take the risk. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to hear more of your story, uh, your advice, your tips and what you're doing with your company. And uh, you're just you're doing so much for the community. And uh, I'm honored to have you here. Thanks for listening to The American Dream. Let me know what you thought of this episode by tweeting me at Elias T. Be sure to hit subscribe and leave a five-star review. Por favor. If you're looking for more leadership insights and stories like the ones you just heard, sign up for my series, The American Dream, at drift.com slash American-Dream. Every quarter, you'll learn how Drift is progressing towards our mission of remaking the face of corporate America. And you will get insights from amazing Latin American and entrepreneurs of color and leaders like Manny Medina of Outreach, Maria Martinez of Cisco, and many others, along with curated content, news, events, and ideas delivered straight to your inbox. Muchas gracias, and don't forget to sign up.